Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. On today's episode of Pediatric Meltdown, we'll be talking with Julia Parzik. Now, full disclosure, Julia is my daughter, and she has been working in the field of eating disorder recovery since she worked on her own eating disorder. I am so proud of the work that she's doing. And I'm really excited for you all to hear from her. She had an experience recently at a physician's office that was really difficult, and she and I had chatted about it, and I thought it might be really helpful for clinicians to hear how sometimes our words affect the patients we see unwittingly knowing that it might be harmful. So please enjoy this conversation. And Just know, too, this is our first recording and our first episode, so bear with me, and I hope that you'll enjoy all the episodes to come. Hi, Julia. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Hey, welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, our first podcast recording. So full disclosure, Julia is my daughter, and she's an eating disorder recovery coach and has an Instagram site at Fit, Fat, and all that. And we're going to just hop right in. Julia, can you tell us a little about your eating disorder journey, how you got to where you are? And then, you know, hopefully by the end of this, you'll have some words for pediatricians and other healthcare providers as to how to make sure that our words aren't hurting anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Basically, I started having body image issues probably around the age of 12, 13, 14. Grew up in a household where, you know, no one really talked badly about my body specifically, but, you know, both my parents have some body image issues. Sorry, mom, for the call out. (laughs) And, you know, eating disorders were kind of prevalent in our family. I think there were always, you know, some conversations around, you know, not liking the way the person in the family looked, you know, not liking certain things and just also growing up in a time where the media and seeing only one type of body type, I did not look like the girls in the magazines. I didn't like look like a lot of my friends. I didn't look like my sister. And she got a lot of attention from, you know, boys and men and stuff like that. And I just assumed like my body's going to look like that. And it didn't. I'm short and I'm curvy. And I started to be bullied for my weight, probably in like middle school and high school. And I just started to think that my body was the problem and I needed to fix my body instead of thinking that the people that were bullying me were So I started restricting my food. I was going on like pro-Anna and Mia sites, which are basically sites that kind of help you have an eating disorder. Super disturbing but started over-exercising a lot. And then I started to be validated for my weight loss. So whether it was comments from like my grandma or comments from 
my friends or people at school or just people in my lives commenting about my weight loss. And it just kind of validated that I get more attention, that I'm more worthy, I'm more lovable at a smaller size. And it kind of moved into college of, you know, making myself throw up, over-exercising, tracking everything that I ate. And that kind of spanned over for about like 10 years. So about like 13, 14 to the age of 24 until I decided to seek out eating disorder recovery from a therapist out in Los Angeles. And I worked with her and a registered dietitian for about three years. And I still see my therapist now. And I would say that I'm fully recovered and probably have been for about five years or so. And now I help women recover from their own eating disorders just based on my own experiences and really being interested in, in that mental illness. And so, yeah, that's where I am now. What was the turning point for you that you sought help? I think, honestly, a big part of it was seeing when I was teaching, when I was nannying, seeing that kids are such sponges. And my biggest thing was I never want my children to go through what I had to go through, I wanted it, that legacy to end. I kind of wanted to generationally stop that because an eating disorder is a psychosocial disorder. So it can be genetics. It can be, you know, because of your environment, it can be whatever. It can be so many different factors. And I knew that if I didn't want my daughter or my son to struggle with that, then I would have to be the one that had to like cut that and like kind of recover from that. So it wouldn't, pass on to my children. And just seeing like kids talk about their bodies at such a young age, I was like, something's got to stop. Right. Well, and I think, you know, again, from just our own personal family, that it was something I was super conscious of wanting to make sure that my children didn't have eating issues because I started dieting when I was nine. And, you know, I honestly thought I was doing a good job. I'm a physician. I had adolescent medicine training. I talked to kids that had eating disorders. And, you know, so I still missed the mark. And, you know, that's hard. And I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Well, no. I mean, the thing is, is it's not like we grew up in a family where, you know, I see a lot of clients where the parents are telling them they're fat and they're gross and they need to lose weight. And that's not the environment I grew up in. It's just, I, you know, because of the media, because of society, and then also just seeing, you know, both of my parents having some insecurities and talking about their own bodies, you know, seeing like, oh, well, I think my mom's, my mom and dad are perfect, but they don't like X, Y, and Z, then maybe I shouldn't like that either. And just kind of mimicking what I saw. It wasn't ever push on to me, but you know, kids are sponges and they, they watch their parents. Well, and I think, you know, again, this is a really good segue into why pediatricians should care about this because we see kids, I mean, our job is to promote, you know, health and development, which means monitoring growth. And we talk about, you know, what babies are eating. I mean, food and sleep are big things in, you know, infant, children, teens lives. So, you know, again, the words that we say, and I think that there's so much, you know, this war on obesity and insurance companies focusing on BMI, that it's really hard to know how to prevent eating disorders being triggered by the things we say. And the other thing is we have parents that are often maybe have their own issues. And so how we talk about food and bodies 
is it's tough. And can you talk a little bit about what happened recently when you went to the doctor about the whole BMI issue? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, is BMI was always a trigger for me when I was little, and. I went to, you know, your pediatric office and I loved my doctors growing up. But the second I found out what BMI meant, I Googled it and I have always been either considered overweight or obese. And I'm not, you know, I'm the healthiest I've ever been. And actually in my eating disorder, when I was in a normal weight range, I was really unhealthy. I was making myself throw up. So, you know, just to have this like one defining factor of like, am I healthy or not, was super triggering at a really young age. So I recently, I have a lot of GI issues. Thank you, dad. Um, and I recently went to the doctor to just talk about, you know, what's been going on. This is something I've always really struggled with. I'm lactose intolerant, but just have a super sensitive stomach. And so I went to the doctor, explained to her all of my symptoms. I told her I had done like the FODMAP diet, but when I initially went into the appointment, I had asked to be blindly weighed. This is just something that it's a boundary for me. I don't like to see my weight. It's not an important factor here. And so the nurse said, okay. And I just turned around and I weighed. And then at the end of the appointment, you obviously get a little like take-home slip with all of your stats and everything like that. And at the top in bold letters, there's my weight. And I've now learned to just turn down getting weighed because it that was an important factor and that's been a fine thing moving forward. I had even explained to my doctor that I had a previous eating disorder. So, you know, taking things out of my diet could be super triggering for me and just like really wanting to navigate how to do that in a healthy way. And at the the take-home slip, which I have now found out that it's kind of like an automated response, one of the suggestions was to go on a low-fat uh, diet and to consume around like 1200 calories. Some of the suggestions were eat one carrot with low fat dip, eat a few crackers with a teaspoon of peanut butter. And I don't know who eats a teaspoon of peanut butter, like not even a child. And to also download um, an app called Calorie King and track what I'm eating. And all of that information, if this was 10 years ago, I would have been incredibly triggered. I would have felt like my weight was the only problem here and that was going to fix my GI issues. And I probably would have gone on an extreme diet. And I had told her that I had a previous eating disorder. And like this information was just so casually given to me without any thought. Well, and I think there's that whole issue too about, you know, for example, a kiddo comes in who is heavy. And of course, we're worried about, you know, our, if we don't do something, that we're going to, you know, this child's going to go on to have diabetes and maybe there's a family history. And so we'll say things like, well, just eat healthy and exercise. And that may be our guidelines, or we might give them like, not the food pyramid anymore, but like the healthy food plate and a list of things. And, and I mean, I've told people before, you know, read the side of a cereal box and make sure you just limit your child to this portion and make sure that you don't have chips or cookies in your house. I mean, I think I even, and somebody said, well, they'll find them. And I, I think I even suggested one time, we'll just, you know, lock them in your car or something like that. I mean, I think about some of the things I've said, thinking I'm being helpful. Mm-hmm. And you now I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, but all the time we're giving nutritional information. So, I mean, what do you think about those things, this whole war on obesity and junk food and the nutritional information of just saying, 
you know, eat healthy and exercise. I mean, the thing is here is I'm considered obese. So (laughs) yeah, if I'm considered obese, then a lot of Americans are considered obese. So sure as heck, those numbers are going to look really high. But also I feel like no one's really thinking about the mental health of these patients. I mean, we live in a society that's so fat phobic. It's not like anyone enjoys being in a larger body because there's so much weight discrimination. And so I think people just think, just eat healthy and move your body. And it's not that simple. You know, we have binge eating disorder and bulimia and anorexia and, you know, orthorexia. And we have all of these, you know, eating disorders now. And, you know, it's not just as simple as just eat healthy and move your body. And the thing is, is, a lot of lower socioeconomic classes like don't have the same resources that somebody else has. Maybe they can only afford fast food or you know food that they can get on food stamps. And so what is the reality here if there is a kid that maybe is struggling with his weight? Where does his family come from? You know, do they have the resources for that? Do they have the education on what the kid should or you know should be eating and stuff like that? Like do they have those resources and if they don't you know, let's be a little bit more cognizant of that and be a little bit more compassionate that not everybody has the same situation as everybody else. And knowing like, is the kid happy? Like, are there other ways that you can kind of navigate this conversation of, you know, maybe going for family walks or, you know, exploring, you know, reading a book like intuitive eating and having the parents like educate themselves on, being more mindful with their eating versus just like good or bad labeling food as healthy and unhealthy because kids will take that on into their life. And that was something that I carried is I thought they were good and bad foods. And then if I had a bad food, then I felt like a bad person. And I felt like I couldn't be around cookies and chips and all these things because I had no control. So I think we need to be a little bit more compassionate towards some of these patients and and children of knowing that they don't have the same resources as everybody else. And also, is it a genetics thing? And I think we're very tuned into, you know, probably anorexia because of all of the medical complications, you know, the, the cardiovascular, they have low blood pressure, low heart rate. They're at huge risk of, you know, of medical complications, the folks that are struggling on the other end who may be normal body weight or considered overweight. And and again, when we're talking about overweight and obesity, we're talking about particularly in women that may wear a size 12 or 14. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you wear a size 10 or 12 and your body weight fell into that because of muscle mass and that. So that number in my mind is not helpful. And yet we are so focused on collecting it. It's considered a health measure and, you know, insurance companies require that we not only collect it, but then we counsel on it. And kind of what you're saying is in in the work that you've done and in your own experience, if we really have a concern about somebody's health, that maybe we need a team of people that are trained in those nuances of eating disorders. And then it's not just as simple as saying, you know, just quit eating so much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not that simple. And the thing is, is doctors are so great for what they do, but their scope of care isn't nutrition, you know? And so if there is a concern of 
a kid's nutrition or, you know, a, a kid's weight, like seeking out or referring them to a registered dietitian that maybe specializes in haze, which is health at every size perspective, you know, not one that's just going to put them onto a diet because there is a difference between those registered dietitians and the health at every size registered dietitians. But I think knowing that it's, it's just not that simple. And, you know, the BMI was created by a white European man that was taking information for white European men. So as women, it, it just doesn't make sense because that wasn't created for women and American women. And so to me, I think it's just absolutely ridiculous. BMI is not a measure of health at all. And I also think too that pediatricians or doctors just really need to be educated on the different types of eating disorders that exist. Because a lot of the time, if you don't look sick, if you're not anorexic, like it's kind of looked over. I mean, bulimia is just as serious. You can have, you know, rotting of teeth and esophagus and gut issues. And, you know, there are so many complications with that along with binge eating disorder, but no one really talks about that. Right. And I think one of the things that happens, you know, for example, on sports physicals, you know, we get weight and height. And of course, those things are important because if a person is not growing normally in terms of particularly in height or they're extremely underweight, you know, we really do need to look at some of those, but I know kids and particularly girls are so focused when they see that weight curve and they see it jump up during puberty. I mean, they're just automatically saying I'm fat. And in fact, I had a girl in recently who said, I don't want to know my weight. And I said, I need to put something down on the sports physical. I know what your weight is here. What weight are you comfortable with? And she picked a weight that was like two pounds from where she was. And I said, okay, because that's something she was going to see. To be honest, the difference of two pounds on the sports physical has no bearing on her ability to participate in sports. And I just felt like if I insisted on, no, I have to put down that you weighed this weight, that it was going to be hard for her. So mm-hmm. I kind of needed to listen to her, but, you know, so many kids do come in being very concerned. And then there's also the flip side, too, where sometimes I have families where lots of folks are quite happy, and we just don't know anything about their history, their journey, what's going on with them. And so as we sort of think we're being helpful, talking about your child is overweight or obese or their BMI is this number and you need to do a different job, a better job, because clearly, you know, you're the problem because you're providing these foods. I just don't know. I, it, it's really, really tough, but I wanted to hear from, you know, sort of the patient perspective that what we say does matter. Yeah. And, you know, I understand that those conversations sometimes do have to be had, but I think we need to understand that not everybody is cut from the same cloth and nobody really knows the mental health of these, these patients, these parents, like what situations that they've been in. And so I think, again, like I've said, there just needs to be some compassion and maybe a little bit more of a conversation that, you know, you're not walking on eggshells, but you have educated yourself on how to navigate these in a healthier and less triggering way. Because God forbid you have a kid that goes home that he's told his BMI, he's overweight, he or she, and 
decides to go on a special K diet like I did and is eating three-fourths cup of cereal for a school day and then plays on two sports teams. Like that's not enough for a kid, but you know, if that's all the information that they have, they're going to do it. Right. And like you mentioned before, and I don't even know if Proana is still around, but there are some pretty scary sites online where kids can go in. I remember looking at it too. And it was, you know, push your food around on the plate or tell people that you have a stomach ache um, or that you already ate. So all these ways of like to disguise what you're doing. And, And so, you know, our kids are going to those sites, particularly if the message that they get when they leave our office is you're too fat. Yeah. And you need to lose weight. And if the information that we have out there is crash diets, they're going to do them. And then, hi, welcome to your whole adulthood of yo-yo dieting and weight cycling. Can you talk a little bit about, I think that there's a lot of different ways of eating. And I think, you know, you hear the phrase clean eating, or I just want to get healthy. What's your take on that? Or what are some things that we should know about when somebody says, oh, I'm doing clean eating or, you know, I'm doing plant-based diet? You know, the thing is, is, I mean, I teach from a health at every size perspective and I teach intuitive eating. And when someone says I eat clean, I'm like, so what foods are considered dirty? Because the only way I can see a food being dirty is if it's literally covered in dirt. And if we have this idea that certain things are clean and dirty, healthy and unhealthy, good or bad, then we associate an emotional response to that. And when we eat these quote unquote good foods or clean foods, we feel like good people and we feel accomplished and we think we have willpower and we're super motivated and determined. But when we eat bad foods or dirty foods or unhealthy foods, we're lazy. uh, We don't take care of ourselves. We feel a lot of guilt and shame. And then it creates this restrictive cycle of I can't have these things. And then when I do have them, I'm either going to binge or I'm going to purge on them or I'm just going to feel really guilty and shameful. And so it creates this really mentally unhealthy relationship with food. And so when someone says, I just want to get healthy, well, what do you really mean? Do you mean you need to get thin? Do you mean you need to get skinny? Because that's what we're told in our society is health means you're thin. And there is no determining factor of one size is healthier than the other because I'm the healthiest I've ever been at a size 12. Well, when I was a size eight or six, I was making myself throw up. And from a doctor's perspective, that's probably not very healthy, but from the outside, maybe there wouldn't have been any concern. Right, right. Well, and I do think just as I'm listening to your words, and if I had a a child, particularly, I guess it would be more like a teenager, but it could be an elementary age kid who was heavy and had a family history of diabetes and had perhaps even high blood pressure where weight might be a factor, that it might be a whole person approach to you have high blood pressure and I'm concerned. Let's look at a couple of things. We might get some blood work. We're going to monitor your blood pressure and we're going to look at a variety of things that might help your blood pressure because maybe it runs in your family. So you may have inherited this tendency for high blood pressure. And there are some things that might be helpful. And so we're going to create a team. Um, Maybe I'll have you speak with my social worker because we're fortunate to have somebody adjust, you know, what's going on in your family. Because like you mentioned, 
if, and I've had this in some of my families, when I started talking about, um, tell me about the foods that you have, and they were eating cheap food because that's the only thing they could afford. And mm-hmm. so for me to say, well, you should be eating this and that, and they said, we, we can't afford that. We just don't have the money to do that. And, you know, to be quite honest, sometimes what we call junk food is cheap and, and plentiful and readily acceptable in neighborhoods where there often are what we call food deserts. So maybe just, I guess, a takeaway from our conversation might be being very mindful of our words and perhaps educating ourselves. And I think one of the books that I've read that you recommended was Health at Every Size. I think the intuitive eating, um, and we can include information in the show notes about that um, so that our language perhaps, you know, is different. Because yeah. the last thing I want a kid to leave my office is that the only thing they heard me say was, you're overweight and you need to go on a diet. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's too really important, like the registered dietitian on the team that I work with, you know, I have clients that maybe don't have those resources like these kids do. And she always talks about adding things in instead of taking things out. So maybe you still are getting food you know, from McDonald's. Well, can you add in maybe a side salad next time when you do get your burger and fries? Like, can you add some things in instead of removing things and just make it more nutrient dense versus kind of pulling back on these things that they typically get? Because then it's going to feel really restrictive and it's going to create an unhealthy relationship with food. So I think, again, just educating yourself on how to approach these conversations and reading those books, like you mentioned. And I think that there is this idea too that, and I've heard lots of people say it, not only patients, but, you know, my friends, my family is, I can't have these foods in my home because I have no willpower. I will completely eat everything that's there. And so it is, those foods are dangerous And I think the idea that if foods are accessible and they're not felt to be like somehow so special that you're not craving them, obsessing over them. Um, So I I know that I've, you know, heard people say, well, I can't keep Oreos in the house because I eat the whole bag. Yeah. I mean, and I used to be very much like that way. And I've actually heard too, like using phrases like, bribing kids with treats and things like this. It creates this idea that this is something that's scarce. This is something that isn't common. And when I have it, I'm going to eat it all. So, you know, in the beginning, if you feel like you can't have Oreos in your house, maybe when you start getting them and you having them regularly in your house, because one of my clients, like one of the agreements is she has to have a pack of Oreos in her house every week. And in the beginning, yeah, she ate a lot of Oreos, but then she realized, okay, they're there whenever I want them and they're not going anywhere. And there's not this idea of scarcity and feeling the need of hoarding it or consuming it in high quantities because I can have it whenever I want it. Right. And I think that's a very different mindset. And I think probably lots of people listening to this may be thinking, oh, we can't possibly tell people that you should have things in your home that are junk or um, dangerous foods or, um, you know, bad for you, that kind of thing, because nobody's going to know how to manage that. And Mm -hmm. certainly not a kid. 
And, uh, you know, I think it, it starts from a very young age, how we talk about food, because, you know, food does have a, an important role. It's part of our celebrations. And again, there are some things that we do use food for, you know, you get your shots, let's go get an ice cream cone. You know, so it's just something to think about. But I do think that that information about health at every size, that belief that if you're overweight, you must be sick or unhealthy Mm -hmm. if you're really thin and, you know, look a certain way that you by default are healthy. And that's just not the case. No, I have plenty of plus size friends that live healthy, happy lives and they're constantly ridiculed and judged by a lot of medical professionals about their weight when they have no health issues. Well, and I think, you know, sometimes I've been to doctors sometimes who might be considered overweight too, and they're giving me information about how to diet or suggest that I lose weight. And it just feels confusing. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, and also as a doctor, do I have to be a certain weight in order to give helpful information? It's a difficult conversation. I think the best that we can do is to be mindful, be aware, and be educated. Yeah. Again, we'll include information and just sort of begin this conversation. And as far as um, your Instagram site, so um, it is called Fit Fat and All That, and it has become very popular. Julia talks a lot about body acceptance and body neutrality. And I think probably geared more for older kids, probably not a young child, but um, it's really more probably even a young adult is probably your biggest audience. I would say like 18, 18 and up. Yeah, but certainly you can look at that site and I'll put information about that. But I do think, you know, it speaks to people accepting how they look and that we all look very different. There's no one perfect size. Uh, So uh, I don't know if there's any other closing remarks or things that are just takeaways for us. One of the biggest things I think that I've learned, if you're listening and you're not a medical professional or um, you're just a patient, um, really advocating for yourself. That's something that I've learned is speaking up when something feels uncomfortable, when I'm upset about seeing my weight or feeling pressure about feeling weight, like knowing that you can advocate for yourself and say like, I didn't like how you approach this. Um, I felt really uncomfortable um, because this is how doctors are going to learn how to approach these conversations because I'm really lucky that I'm through my recovery. So it wasn't super triggering, but who knows how many other people that that's happened to that go home and they relapse with their eating disorder. So, you know, just being really mindful of the words that we say and you know, there's, there's no harm in educating yourself more and continuously learning. This is how we all get better. And if anything has told us about 2020 is we all need to learn a lot more. That's right. So, I, you know, again, I think in closing, it's be kind, be mindful. Think about if what we're saying is truly helpful, that simple words like just eat better and exercise more is not necessarily helpful advice. And I think it's really something that our medical professional organizations, we need to really think about the information 
that we are giving each other and the information that's being collected from insurance companies that is not necessarily helpful and fact may be harmful. So yeah. I just want to thank you so much for your time today and keep doing the good work that you're doing. Thanks, Mama. Phew. Always a challenge listening to your own child talk about struggles that you didn't even know that they were dealing with. I think in the long run, it has made Julia stronger, and certainly it has allowed her to reach out to other particularly young women who might be struggling with similar body issues and eating disorders because she can relate to their struggles from an, you know firsthand position. She has that perspective of lived experience. You can find Julia at Fit Fat and All That, a really fun title of her Instagram site. And she is also an eating disorder recovery coach. And I will include links to her site if you know of any young woman that you would like to have them check into an eating disorder recovery coach and what that's about. Again, this is not a therapist to replace that support, but it's in addition to. I will include all that information in the show notes. There was also a couple references, the book Healthy at Every Size, and also Intuitive Eating and the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and I will include those links as well. I want to thank you guys for listening. I know you're really busy and have lots of other places you could be. And I am grateful that you are willing to be on the journey today on this very first podcast. It is an interesting opportunity, lots of fun, and I'm really excited about upcoming guests because they are just amazing people. And I've explained to them, I look at this as kind of, uh, hey, I heard you at a conference, and let's sit down at dinner and talk about your passion. And it's just really fun to hear people speak from the heart and share their wisdom and get you fired up. So again, I appreciate your time and look forward to our time together soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and any thoughts you might have about future topics. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.